So when I was in college, uh, guys, I, I had some crazy roommates, and I think probably all of us in this room are in one or two camps. You, either you've had some crazy roommates, or if you haven't, you probably were the crazy roommate. But I remember one summer, uh, we were living on campus. I went to UNC Wilmington, and we were living in a six-person apartment, uh, so that was fun. And uh, that summer, five of us were staying, but one of the guys wasn't going to be there for the summer, so he sublet his room to another one of our friends. And so we'll call these two roommates Steve and John, just so you don't get confused. Uh, so Steve was the roommate who joined us that summer. Now, Steve was a guy who had a lot of personality, would talk your ear off, very eccentric, very all over the place, which to me, it doesn't really bother me, but for some people, they could be like, you need to chill out. And so John, who was one of our current roommates, was not a big fan of Steve. And so Steve would do things like, you know, blast Disney music and sing to it very loudly all the time. And because his reasoning was, why not? And so after, it had only been about a week or maybe two weeks, maybe not even two weeks, I'm not sure. But John had gotten so frustrated that Steve ended up leaving. I don't know if he like went outside to run an errand or whatever, but he leaves the apartment. Uh, John goes into his room. Uh, we lived on the second floor and starts throwing his things out the window. So his pillowcase, a bunch of towels, a bunch of clothes, just like because he was just very upset. Steve comes back in and gets very upset. Now, I'm thinking, like, this is kind of funny. Like, it's, I mean, yeah, it's kind of annoying that someone's throwing your stuff out the window, but it's also kind of funny, right? So I, of course, didn't do anything to stop it. And uh, so he's upset because what had happened was that uh, Steve had put, uh, one of his, put his laptop in his pillowcase, and his pillowcase is one of the things that was thrown out the window. Now, why you put your laptop in your pillowcase, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and so John obviously felt really, really bad. And being a college student, you can't really afford to fix someone's laptop. Um, and so I can't remember exactly what happened. I don't think he ended up getting a new laptop. I think they just repaired it, although it wasn't expensive. Luckily, Steve's mama loved Steve a lot and bought him all sorts of things. Uh, but, so, but so John, because and, and, he felt bad, he bought him a gift card. He said he was sorry. But at the end of the day, uh, he couldn't really make up for what he had done, right? And let's just say, you know, hypothetically, that he actually could buy Steve a brand new laptop. Even then, we would wonder, was it really making up for what he had done just because he actually replaced what he had broke? I think all of us would probably say probably not. Uh, and, and I share that story because I want to ask us this question as we begin this morning, and that's this. Uh, do our good deeds make up for our bad ones? Right? Do our good deeds make up for our bad ones? I think especially in our culture today, this is a very uh, poignant question because I think a lot of times we would say, as long as you're a good person, as long as my good outweighs my bad, then I'm good, I'm going to go to heaven, and things are good with me because, yes, I'm not perfect, I don't do everything right, but I do a lot of good things. And so the question is, do they actually make up for our bad ones? That's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, if you were here last week, I want to reiterate our bottom line as we begin, and that was this, uh, that we miss out on life not because of what we do, but because of what we pursue. Uh, the chapter and verse additions to our, uh, to our Bibles were not originally in there. And so sometimes where the chapters are, are placed in, the, in our Old Testament, New Testaments are kind of unfortunate because it makes you feel like they're two different thoughts when they're actually in congruence. And so this morning, if you were here last week, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul was basically saying, listen, I lay down my life for other people. I serve other people. And I do this not to be a good person, not to get something from God, because God 
God has done this for me, and I want other people to see and experience the gospel. So he says that, then he uses this athletic metaphor to talk about how athletes train themselves in the same way he wants to train himself to live and honor people so that he's not disqualified. And then today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open there. And if you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you that you can use. Uh, This is actually a continuation of what Paul was saying. You'd really want to read all this together because today, Paul is going to give a rather intense example of what happens when you do a lot of good things, but your heart actually isn't pursuing the Lord. And so that is where we are today, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are in a series called Masterclass, uh, written by a guy named Paul within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he's continuing on this thought, again, that he lays down his life for other people not to get something from God because he wants other people to experience the gospel like he has And he's going to give us an example, again, why it's important that our hearts are attuned to Jesus, not just that we do good things. He says this, chapter chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, uh, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Uh, and we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So if you're like, what is he saying there? Uh, The first Corinthian church was largely made up of Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people. So there were some Jews, but most of them were not Jewish people. And Paul's point here is that being in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of God's chosen people. So no longer is it the Jews, no longer has it to do with your ethnicity, but it has to do with Christ. And his point is, if you are in Christ, just like God's chosen people, you are also now a part of God. God's chosen people. Uh, Verse 3, he says, They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual uh, spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so what he's doing here is he's using the analogy or the story of the Israelites when they left Egypt. So God rescues the Israelites from Egypt. They wander for a long time, and he ends up leading them to the promised land. And so when he says things like spiritual food and spiritual drink, he's referring to the manna in heaven that God would lay out for them every single morning so that there's a lot of people in the desert in the middle of nowhere. They were actually able to eat. And there was also a rock in the beginning of the journey from out of Egypt and at the end that Moses struck to produce water for the Israelites to drink. And in fact, some rabbinic in the rabbinic tradition would say that that rock was actually with them the entire time. And so again, that was how they were able to drink. And Paul's point is simply this, that Christ was with the Israelites, even though they didn't know it back then. So you had the pillar of the the cloud during the day that the Israelites follow. At night, it was the pillar of fire. You had the spiritual food, uh, the drink that God provided. And Paul's actually saying that that was God in Christ that was providing uh, for the Israelites on their journey. And it's the same thing for us today. And then he says this, verse 5. He says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, this is interesting, right? That all except for two of the Israelites who were with the original Israelites when they left Egypt actually entered into the promised land. There are only two of them, which we'll talk about in a second, actually got to see the promised land that God promised to the Israelites. And the question is why. Paul's going to give us an example in just a second. But the reason is that although the Israelites did a lot of good things, they were still unfaithful time and time again. 
Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that the Israelites lost their salvation in the New Testament sense of the word. But instead, in the Old Testament, God's judgment was often uh, displayed uh, through the loss of blessing and even the loss of physical life. So it does not mean that God rejected them, that they are not uh, in God's kingdom where we will be when we die. But his point was, in the Old Testament especially, because they didn't know God the way that we did, his judgment often came through the loss of blessing and physical life. And his point was simply this, that those with a a superficial belief in God should be cautioned. That's what he's saying. They, they, they did a lot of the good things, right? They did a lot of the things that we would consider right, especially with the New Testament parallel. So it says that they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized, right? As followers of Christ, we are baptized if you are a follower of Jesus. The spiritual food and the spiritual drink, was, was he was making an analogy here to communion, right? As followers of Christ, we partake in communion to, to, re, to remember and to celebrate what Christ has done for us, right? They had done all these things that were good things and and yet, God was still not pleased. So it's interesting. I think what Paul's trying to show us here is this, that God isn't looking for right deeds, but a right heart. God is not looking for right deeds, but a right heart. Again, his point here is that you can do a lot of good things, which is great, but at the end of the day, God ultimately is more concerned about our heart. He's more concerned about why are we doing what we're doing, because we all know we can do a lot of good things for a lot of other maybe not-so-good motivations. I think of, and if you're part of New City, you hear me share this story a lot. I went into college as a music major, and I was doing jazz piano. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, uh, but I was doing uh, jazz piano, and, and part of the requirements was I had every week my teacher would, would make me listen. He said, you have to listen to like, I don't remember what the number was, like three or four musicians and a couple of songs songs every single week. And so every single week I did that, but I did exactly what was required. So if I had listened to like four different artists, I listened to one song of four different artists. Now looking back on it, he was probably quite frustrated with me, but the problem was this, right? I did what I was supposed to do, but because I didn't really care about it, I didn't actually do it like the way it was supposed to be done, right? So we had, we were supposed to listen to music and listen to songs and listen to artists because if you do that, it'll help train your ear. It'll make you grow as a musician. Like it wasn't like check off the list. It was like, you're supposed to do this because you should just want to do this. Because I didn't want to do it, I could check it off the list, but my heart was not in it at all. And what we're going to see in this text is that while good things are good and they're important for us to do, more so than that, he's looking for a right heart, because if our heart isn't in it, that'll actually lead to a lot of problems, right? And so if we continue reading in verse 6, here are some of the problems. Again, this is pretty intense, but he's making a point here. Here are some of the problems that the Israelites found themselves in time and time again as they were making their journey to the promised land. Verse 6, it says this, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. So he's about to give us some examples of what happened to the Israelites. Uh, verse 7, he says, Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it, was, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. So this is a reference. If you're not familiar, I'm going to kind of give you some context with all these examples. Uh, this was particularly a reference with the golden calf. If you remember, God uh, rescues the Israelites in a mighty way out of Egypt. Uh, Moses, a little bit later, goes up to Mount Sinai, and he's up there for a while, and the Israelites are like, what are we supposed to do? And so they bring a lot of their jewelry together, and they make this golden calf that they worship as God. Now, I used to be confused. I was like, 
like, if they saw God, like, do all these amazing things, why would they worship, like, a calf? Uh, you have to realize that, that for them, they weren't, like, making up an idol or making up a god. They were making the god Yahweh, they are making a, a representation of him. So their thought was, we're going re- to worship this, this idol as a way to worship God. And God's point here is that they, had, they, they suffered from the sin of idolatry, right? They, and in fact, they celebrated and ate the spiritual food and drink that God gave them in the presence of an idol, right? One of God's things is like, listen, do not, make a, do not worship idols. Do not make an Im- anything in my image. Why? Because there is nothing that you and I can create or imagine or think of that comes anywhere close to the majesty and the greatness of God. And so one of their sins was idolatry, right? They, they made other things in the image of God. Verse 8, here's another example. He says, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. So this would be a reference to Numbers 25, where Israel, as they were do, going through the wilderness, they, they, they passed a neighbor, neighboring nation called the Moabites, where the Israelites began to sleep with the Moabite people. Now, the problem was, one, if you've been here through the series, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, we saw that God has a great design for sex, and, has, and its context has designed it to be good for human flourishing. But outside the context of a committed marriage between man and woman, it is not good for us. But also for the Israelites, not only were they committing sexual morality, but because of that, they then started to worship the gods and the the idols of the Moabites. And so they had the sin of idolatry. They had the sin of sexual immorality. Verse 9, he's another example. It says, let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. So this was a reference to Numbers 21, although this happened quite often where they would test God, where basically God eventually sent serpents uh, to bite many of them. Many of them died. And yet what's, what's interesting about this story is as soon as the Israelites repent, God relents. God gives them grace and forgiveness. Even though their hearts had not changed, they just said their story because they wanted their misery to stop. And God and his goodness stopped it. Now, when we say test, you could kind of think of it in a modern example of this, that God, I'm going to do this thing and if, you, if I do this thing, then you better do this thing, right? You better follow up. And so oftentimes, if we're honest, right, we test God. We maybe do something good. We maybe go to church. We maybe pray. We maybe give with the expectation that God is going to come in on his behalf to do for, to do for us what we want him to do. In other words, we sometimes view God as a genie, right? He's saying, don't do this. Don't test God. You do not, God does not exist for you. You and I exist for God. And so they had the, the sin of testing God. And then lastly, uh, chapter, verse 10, he gives one more example. He says this, and don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. So this was a reference to Numbers 14, where Israel, this is the sad part, is right up to the promised land. If you're familiar with the story, what happens is they send 12 spies into the promised land because they're not quite sure. They want to make sure everything is going to go okay for them. They send the 12 spies. They come back. 10 of the 12 spies say, listen, we can't enter. There's people, I mean, the, the, the land is amazing, but there's like giants there. They're really strong. Like if we try to go in here, we're going to, they're going to kill all of us. Now, two of them, Joshua and Caleb came back and said, no, no, God, God has been faithful. God is calling us to this. Let's go into the promised land. But the Israelites sided with the 10 other spies and decided, no, we're not going to go in there. And so what happened was they ended up grumbling. They ended up complaining. And what should not have taken that much time at all ended up taking 40 years where every single one of them, other than the two spies that said, no, let's be faithful, every single one of them died before entering the promised land. 
Now, to be fair, I do not think this means that every single one of the Israelites was not faithful. I think the reality of the situation, just like us today, that every decision we make impacts other people, right? And so if we're caught in a bind and there's a lot of people around us making a lot of poor decisions, it can impact us in a negative light. And so what happened with the Israelites is so many of them were unfaithful time and time again. Again, idolatry, sexual morality, testing God, grumbling and complaining time and time again, that they did not realize, they did not get to enter into what God had promised them. And here's what's interesting. So I say all that stuff and I've got to be like, well, that's a lot of information there. But here's what's interesting, that the Israelites, again, did a lot of good things. They probably on the Sabbath day, on, uh, you know, on the seventh day, they would worship. Um, they would do kind of some of their sacraments just like we do today. They would, they would honor some of the festivals and the traditions that God had passed down to them. So they did a bunch of good things, and yet they didn't make it. And yet all of them except for two died. And I share that because, again, I think Paul is trying to say this to us. What we need to realize is that our good deeds don't erase our bad deeds. So it's not enough just to be a good person because there's something that still has to be done with our bad deeds. Think of it this way. I think all of us, if we're, if we're honest, have thought in our minds at certain times that if I do X or certain thing, that it's okay to do Y. So you might think, well, I'm a good husband, I'm a good wife, and so I'm going to spend this weekend uh, with my boys, with my girls. I'm going to do some stuff that I probably shouldn't do, but because I'm generally a faithful husband, a faithful wife, it's okay, right? Or maybe because I'm a good person in this area, I'm going to do something, you know, I probably shouldn't do, but nobody's perfect, and so because I'm a good person here, then it's okay for me to do this here. Again, uh, I think of, Christina was telling me uh, when she was younger, my wife, she was saying that she would often, this is kind of a lighthearted example, uh, but she would often take uh, the coins from her dad's uh, coin bin and coin jar uh, to go buy uh, candy at the Quick Mart right down the street. And her justification was, because I do my chores, it's okay to, for me to steal these money, this money, right? Right? Because I do my chores. Now, as a parent, you know, I've got two kids now, you realize, like, your kids have no idea how much you do for them, and so yeah, that's another thing. Uh, but anyway, right, what happens, right? I'm a good person, I do my chores, so it's, of course, it's okay for me to do this. And what Paul is saying here is that while it's a good thing that we honor God, it's a good thing that we do good things, they do not erase the bad that we have committed, right? There still has to be something done for that. And so because of that, he ends the section that we're going to read today uh, in verse 11 by saying this. He said, these things happened to them, so it happened to the Israelites, as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. In other words, he's saying this, that these were not just historical realities for the Israelites, but they're also examples for us as we follow Christ. In other words, he's saying this, that God sees everything, right? God sees absolutely everything. There's no justifying the sins or the evils that we commit. There's no hiding it. There's no pretending that it doesn't happen, that God sees everything. I remember, it kind of reminds me, when I was a kid, uh, my brothers and I were all homeschooled for about the four, same four or five year stretch. And so for me, it was from third to seventh grade. And I think this is when I was still in elementary school. Every day, I had to read for 30 minutes, which when you're a kid, that's a long stinking time, right? And so I had this brilliant plan that I would, for about 15 or 20 minutes, I would read, and then about for 15 or 10 minutes, I would play with some of my, like, action figures. And who's going to know because I'm up in my room and I'm doing it? Well, I think finally, somehow, my mom caught on to the fact that I wasn't as far along in the book as I should have been, or I think I was, like, moving my bookmark, uh, you know, because I, I was like, well, if I'm reading 30 minutes a day. So eventually she asked me, you know, what happened to certain parts of the book? Of course, I make it up. Of course, I get in trouble. But what happened? 
right? What happened was I thought that I could get away with, because I'm doing mostly good things, that I could get away with doing some things that maybe I shouldn't be doing. And Paul's point here is that God sees everything. There is nothing fooling him. And so because of that, verse 12, he says this, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Now, this idea of falling is in reference to verse 8, where God judged many of the Israelites and they died. Or even in chapter 8, if you were here for 1 Corinthians, uh, we were talking about eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, do not be puffed up with knowledge. Again, what often happens is when we think we're good and we justify things that we do, we think we can get away with things that we shouldn't. And he's saying, no, no, humble yourselves before the Lord unless something like this that happened to the Israelites were to happen to you. Don't be like that. And then finally, he does give some encouragement after a rather intense passage of a bunch of people dying. In verse 13, he says this. He says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Uh, uh, but God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. In other words, here's what Paul's saying, that you do not have to fall for your sin, that every single time you and I are in a sinful and a tempting situation, uh, God through his Holy Spirit has given us the ability to choose not to sin. Now, we, none of us are perfect, and so we do not always do that, but his point is that that option is always available, that you and I do not have to suffer the same fate of the Israelites of always choosing, even though we did some good things, because our hearts were not in the right place, because their hearts were not actually about following and honoring the Lord. It led them to do make terrible terrible mistakes and terrible decisions again and again and again. Paul is saying this, that God is faithful to you and will always provide a way if you want it. Now, as a side note really quick, I just want to say this, that sometimes this verse is taken out of context to say that God will never give you more than you can bear. They'll say, look, God is faithful. He will always provide a way out. I just want to say that this is not what this is talking about. Paul is specifically talking about sin and temptation here. He's not saying that you and I will sometimes go through things that are too difficult for us to bear. In fact, in a few weeks, we're doing a series. Uh, we're going to take a break from uh, 1 Corinthians and doing a series called uh, Things Jesus Never Said. And so does God give us things? Uh, is, uh, does God give us more than we can bear is going to be one of the topics. So I won't speak too much on that now. But just suffice to say that that's not what this verse is saying. He's talking specifically to about sin in our life. Now, you may be reading all this and you say, okay, that's a lot of interesting information. We shouldn't sin like the Israelites because bad things happen. But what does this mean for us practically today? Uh, here's what I want to do. I'm going to take a few minutes here and just kind of say this is what it means for us, starting by this. Here's what I think Paul would want us to know from this passage, and that's this, that good deeds don't erase evil desires. Good deeds do not erase evil desires. Again, think of it this way. Christina uh, doing, uh, taking the money because of her chores. Right? She did a good thing. She did her chores, but she had still had the desire to do evil, right? You know this as well, right? So how many times in your life have you justified something wrong because you've done other good things? Right? Doing good things do not take away our evil desires. Or I think about my roommates, again, throwing his stuff out of, the, out of the window, right? He was upset, and there's a lot of things. I mean, my friend John, he went to church. He served. He said, I'm a good person, so it's okay for my anger to get the better of me in this situation. What happens is all of us fall short. All of us have sinful and selfish desires in our life, and so we just need to know that just because we do good things, it doesn't take away the evil desires that we may have urges to do in our life. Now, and here is why I believe it's important for us to know this. Here's why we need to know that good deeds don't erase our evil desires. It's because your desires determine how you really live. 
It's not your actions, but it's your desires, right? We can all fake things. We say this all the time. We can all do things over a short amount of time, but eventually you're going to get frustrated. Eventually you're going to get fed up. If you do not desire to actually do what is right, you're not always going to do what is right. And this was the problem with the Israelites, right? Although they did some right things, their desires ultimately were not for the Lord. And so it led to problems again and again and again. It's not about checking off a list. It's about our hearts. And if our hearts are not following Jesus, it will lead to all sorts of problems in our life, no matter how many good things we do. Again, my jazz piano example, right? I did what I was supposed to do. I listened to the minimal amount of songs. I did the things I was supposed to do. And yet, because my desires were were not actually to learn and get better, I didn't really improve nearly to the degree that I should have before I finally gave it up altogether and switched degrees, which is what I should have done from the very beginning, right? That's the point. And it's your desires, it's not your actions that determine who you really are and how you really live. And if that's true, and I think that's what Paul is trying to give the point here, that if your desires are not to follow Jesus, it doesn't matter how much good you do, you and I will all fall short, we will all make mistakes. If that's true, here's what we need to do this morning. You and I need to give our lives to Jesus, right? You need to give your life to Jesus because if Jesus does not have your heart, no matter how much good you, can, you will do, you will always, you will never be able to measure up to God's perfect standard. And this way, here's what this means. This doesn't mean parts of it. This doesn't mean just on the Sundays I go to church or the times I read my Bible or the times that I give or the times that I help the old lady across the street. No, everything that God deserves your life. And if you want to experience true life in your life, it's not about you trying hard. It's about giving your hearts to him. This is what Paul is saying here, that that Jesus will actually, if he has your heart, he will change your desires. In verse 6, he says this, so that we will not desire evil things as they did, that he wants us to change our hearts and affections towards him. Or in verse 13, where he says that God is faithful, right? If he has your heart, if if your eyes and your mind is set on him, he will be faithful to you even when you don't deserve it. And even even when you blow it, that you cannot follow Jesus. You cannot honor him the way that he has called us to honor him on your own power. And the good news is he never asked you to do it that way anyway. He said, come and follow me and I will give you life that you and I need to give our life to Jesus or we will not experience the life that God has for us, not just in the life to come, but in this life as well. This reminds me of a passage in 1 Samuel 15. It'll be on the screen, the verse. I want to give you some context really quick before I read it. Uh, 1 Samuel, uh, this was during, this is much later. The Israelites are now in the promised land and King Saul is the king of Israel. And basically, the prophet Samuel, God to the prophet Samuel tells Saul, hey, when you go to battle with this nation, uh, you're going to win, but don't take any of the livestock or anything. Like, it's not yours, don't take it. Long story short, they go to battle, and what does Saul do? He takes the, the best livestock, the best fruit, the best food, right? He takes it. And so Samuel, understandably, on behalf of God, is upset with Saul, and he's like, Saul, why did you do this? And here's what Saul's probably thinking. I did a good thing, right? We conquered, we were faithful, we won the battle. So it's okay for me to do this kind of side thing because overall, good was accomplished. And so Saul, uh, Saul's response to Samuel is to say, listen, you know what? I probably shouldn't have done it, but here's the good news. Because I just happened to take you know, some very great you know, animals and livestock, do all stuff, we can go ahead and sacrifice some of it to make it better, right? I did a bad thing, but now let's do a good thing and then it's all good. And this is Samuel's response to, Paul, uh, to Saul when he says that. Verse 22, Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, 
To obey is better than to sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Here's his point. The Lord in their context, us for Christ, now that Christ has come, that Jesus wants your heart, not your good deeds. Jesus wants your heart, not your good deeds. This is not to say that what we do doesn't matter. It absolutely does. But if Jesus does not have our hearts, there's no amount of, I'm going to do this to make up for this. He wants our hearts. And so here is why ultimately Jesus needs to have our life. Here's why. Because Jesus is the only way for us to be right with God. Jesus is the only way to be right with God. So the question, does our good needs make up for bad ones? The answer to that would be no. The prophet Isaiah even says that without Christ, without following the Lord, that our good deeds are like filthy rags. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus is Lord. Right? The gospel is he has done for you what you could not do for yourself. The gospel is that because of Christ, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. The gospel is that it's not about you. The gospel is that God is perfect, righteous, and just, looks down at all of us who have all fallen short of his perfect standard, and instead of looking down on us with anger and resentment and judgment and bitterness, he decides, I'm going to do the one thing that they could not do for themselves. I'm going to send Jesus to be the sacrifice who's going to gladly submit to my will to do this so that anyone no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter what you look like, can have the grace, the forgiveness, and life that Christ offers if you follow him. So let me just be very clear this morning, right? If you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to say I'm glad that you're here. You, I'm glad that you're curious. I'm glad that you're asking questions. But to be honest, Scripture is very emphatically clear that apart from Christ, you and I are destined to spend eternity away from God. There's no amount of trying hard. There's no amount of apologizing. There's no amount of maybe if I do this, it'll make up for my bad. There is nothing that you can do to make up for the ways that you and I have fallen short and dishonored God. And yet... And God's love and in goodness and his kindness to us, what does he do? He sends Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So we need to know that Jesus, only Jesus, is, is the way for us to be right with God. And the question again is, what are we going to do with Jesus? Because if Jesus has our hearts, he will ultimately change how you live. And so here's the bottom line uh, for the text this morning that I want us to take away from what we read. And that's this. Again, that when Jesus has your heart, he changes how you live. Not by you trying really hard, not by you pretending, so I blew it today, so I'm going to do all these things, try to make up for it. No, no, when Jesus has your heart, he changes how you live. And so we do what Paul has been saying these last two weeks, that we love one another, that we submit our desires for the good of other people. Why? Not to earn something from God, not to get something from God, but because we've seen and experienced the grace that he has bestowed on us, and we want as many people as possible to see Jesus to meet Jesus, and to grow in a relationship with him. And so let me just ask this morning as we close, if you are a follower of Christ, uh, what sin issue in your life do you need to stop excusing and start taking seriously? Like what sin issue, if you're being honest, and I think all of us should be and can be, do we often say, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but because I serve, go to church, love Jesus, it's okay. Listen, you need to know this, and we say this all the time, that God is not a restrictive God, that God is not holding us back, that God does not want you and I to miss out on life. And what sin is, is us falling short of the life that God has for us. Listen, if God loves you, if God cares for you, if he knows what will ultimately produce the most joy in your life, then when he says, hey, do this and avoid this, it's not to hold you back, it's so that you and I can actually experience life. And if you want to experience life to the degree of which God has for you, you need to know that when Jesus has your heart, he changes how you live. Listen, what we do matters. 
how we live matters, but even more than that, why we do what we do is important. And the gospel, again, is this, that Christ loved you and I so much that he came to give us a, a way to experience the love and grace and forgiveness of him. And again, these last two weeks, what are we talking about? Putting others' desires before ourselves loving other people, saying no to what we want, and loving other people. And the only way that you and I can do this over the course of our lives is not by trying hard, is not by willing ourselves to do it, but is to fall at the feet of Jesus, recognize the grace and the forgiveness that he has given us. And by extension, we do that so other people can see what he has done in our life. Listen, if you want to do good in your life, it's not about trying hard. It's about following Jesus and the gospels that any one of us can do that, that he gives all of us the opportunity to follow him, not because we tried real hard, because he loves us. Again, when Jesus has your heart, he changes how you live. Let's pray.